and gives proof of his covenant with Abram. We'll be looking at Genesis 15 and 17 as we examine God's covenant with Abram. Last week we talked about God's calling of Abram. Why did God call Abram? We took some time to examine that question last week. Why did God call Abram? Did Abram deserve it? Roy. So you're right, there are a lot of things involved. God's glorious purposes and bringing about redemption and a Messiah, those are connected with God's calling out Abraham. But why Abraham specifically? Well, just please God to do so. There was nothing in Abraham. There was, he had no merit that caused God to call him. It was just God's grace. You said that, Roy. God showed his grace to Abram. That's why he called him. It pleased God to do so. He was just going to be generous to Abram. Now, God first called Abram in the Chaldean city of Ur and then later in Haran. Where did God say Abram would go? What did you say, Craig? He would go away. He didn't actually say specifically where he was going at first. Remember, Hebrews tells us that Abram did not know where he was going when he first went out. But eventually he would arrive in Canaan. God would have to bring him there, though, show him that land. Why did Abram obey God? He believed God, right? He believed God's promises. He had faith in God, and that faith was given to him by God. In which city does Abram eventually settle? Trick question. He doesn't settle anywhere, right? He does arrive in Canaan, but he keeps moving around. He never settles in any city. Remember, he actually recognized himself to be, according to Hebrews, what kind of person on the earth? A sojourner, or an exile, or a stranger. So he dwelled in tents, as if in a foreign land. And though Abram was going to struggle and grow in faith, what did he fundamentally believe in and look forward to above all else? He did believe the promises of God regarding making him a great nation and give him a great name, but what did he Look forward to above everything else. Yes, Danielle? That's right. The city that has foundations. His own country. A heavenly country. The city where God dwells. That's what Abram was looking towards. And that's what he waited for. Like Abram, we too must recognize that we simply dwell in tents in a foreign land. If we want to be happy, if we want to be wise, we must look to the city that has foundations. We must set our minds on things above. We must seek God as our reward. And if we do, just like Hebrews says, God will not be ashamed to be called our God. And indeed, he will prepare a place for us, just as he did for Abram. Questions or comments 
on what we talked about last week? Well, we saw last week that Abram was given many promises related to the earth. Two of those promises included, I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. But there's a big problem with these promises. And it had to do with Sarai. What did we learn about Sarai in Genesis 11 and 12? Yeah, Eric. That's right, she was barren. She had no children. How could such promises about being a great nation and all families of the earth being blessed through Abram, how could that be fulfilled when Abram and his wife had no child? Time keeps on passing, and there's still no child coming. Abram and Sarai get older and older. Where is God and his promises? Is God really being faithful? Well, God is going to speak to Abram once again and encourage Abram about God's faithfulness. In Genesis 15 and 17, God formalizes his promise to Abram as a covenant or a treaty. But as we shall see, this unique covenant not only shows the compassionate and faithful character of God, it also points to the life-giving work of Christ on the cross for sinners. So that's what we're going to investigate more specifically today. Here's our outline. We'll look at Genesis 15 and the covenant ceremony. Then we'll look at Genesis 17 and the covenant sign. And then we'll finish by investigating the New Testament's commentary on Abraham, his covenant, and saving faith. Let's pray before we go on. Oh God, creator God, our Father, I pray, Lord, you'd give me the ability to explain your word now. God, help me to communicate it accurately with the proper weight and in the proper way. And help us to understand it and apply it. Open their ears and their eyes, Lord. Speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start by turning to Genesis 15. If you could open your Bibles there, we're going to read the whole chapter. Genesis 15. To give you some context, allow me to summarize what's taken place between where we last were and where we're going right now. After Abram had traveled through Canaan, a famine forced Abram to seek sustenance in Egypt. There, because his wife was so beautiful, he pretended that Sarai was his sister and not his wife. So Pharaoh took the beautiful Sarai as his wife. God, however, graciously protected Sarai and Abram from tragedy, and when the matter became known, the couple were sent away from Egypt in peace and with more wealth. When Abram returned to Canaan, he and his nephew Lot parted ways, since the land could not sustain both of their great possessions. Lot moved near Sodom and was later captured during a war between some of the local kings. Abram gathered his warriors and his allies and fought to rescue Lot. Abram was victorious, and Lot, Lot's family, and all of Lot's possessions were restored. This brings us to chapter 15. Now let's follow along, starting in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. 
And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, or they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. All right, that ends the chapter, and that's that's where we'll stop our reading. It's a long section. And we have another long section to read a little bit later, so we won't have time to observe everything that there is to observe in this passage. However, we do want to observe some things before we interpret or ask interpretive questions. We're focusing specifically on details related to God's covenant with Abram. How does God speak to Abram here? Yes. That's right, in a vision. How does God identify himself? He says, I am what? He calls himself the Lord. He does do that in the passage. But the first thing he says is, I am your shield. I am a shield to you. Now, some translations also attribute the second phrase to God as well, where it reads, your reward is very great. The NIV, the King James Version, and the New King James Version version all say, I am your very great reward. How does Abram respond to the repetition of God's promise of blessing? Because God says to Abram some of the things he's already said. How does Abram respond? Does he say, thanks, God. I'm glad you told me again. He's going to ask specifically for assurance, but he brings up an issue. Yes. That's right. He says, I I don't understand. If you don't remember God, I don't have a kid. I don't have a child. Abram reminds God that Abram has no child, and he says, Eliezer of Damascus is my heir. And Eliezer would be an adopted heir, not somebody that actually was from Abram's family or his own child. 
In response, God says Abram's heir will not be this Eliezer, but will come from Abram's own body. Furthermore, God gives Abram a picture of Abram's descendants. What is the picture? Yeah, Danielle. That's right. He says, go outside and look at the stars. You want a picture of the descendants that I'm going to give you? Go up and look at the stars and see if you can number them. Speaking of numbering the stars, at one time man thought he could number the stars. Early astronomers attempted to do just that, but technology has opened our eyes to our absolute inability to do this. According to what astronomers say today, there are about 10,000 stars visible to the naked eye. But according to, but when we use space telescopes and other resources, we can observe about 100 billion stars in just our galaxy. Do you know how many galaxies we estimate there are? According to Hubble and uh, other estimates based on our observation, about 100 billion galaxies. But that number is expected to increase as our technology advances and we're able to observe more galaxies in the universe. So that's a lot of stars. And I don't think we'll ever finish counting them. In response to this direction to number the stars, to try and see if you can count the stars, the text says, Abram believed the Lord. Abram believed in Yahweh, and he, that's God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, what does the term reckoned mean? Imputed would be another good word. Counted, assigned to. God counted it to Abram as righteousness. He imputed it to Abram as righteousness. God also reminds Abram of God's promise to give Abram and his descendants the land of Canaan. But what does Abram ask for in response? Craig, you mentioned this before. He wants assurance. He wants proof. He wants a sign. How will I know that you will give me this? In reply, God commands Abram to bring five specific animals and cut three of them in half. Abram does this, and he lays the pieces apart from each other. Then Abram waits, and darkness soon falls. And what happens as night comes? Two things happen. Yeah, Danielle. He falls asleep, and what does he have? He has, um, the Lord is going to speak more to him, but it says terror and great darkness fell upon him. So a nightmare. There's some sort of terror in his sleep. And in that, God reveals to him the timing of Abram's descendants inheriting the land, or something regarding the timing. God promises that Abram's descendants will be oppressed as slaves in a foreign land for about 400 years, before that land is plundered and judged and the Hebrews return to possess the land. But why such a long wait, according to the text? That's right, he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there are some, there God is being patient with the people group that lives in Canaan, one of the people groups, or perhaps that's representative of all of them. He's being patient with them, but that patience is going to run out at a certain time. This is all part of God's glorious purposes to judge the people who are in the land and then give it to Abram's descendants. But it's not yet the time. Abram's told that he will die in peace. His descendants will come and take the land. So there's that. There's the revealing of that through the terror and darkness, this dream, this vision, this nightmare to Abram. But then something else happens. 
in the darkness. What else happens? Yes, this may seem very strange to us at first. A smoking oven and a flaming torch appear and pass through the cut pieces of animals. Okay. In the final section of this chapter, God tells Abram about the borders of the land his descendants will be given. It says, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land currently occupied by a number of people groups. We know what the Euphrates River is. That Tigris and Euphrates are the two rivers that go through um, the eastern section of the Middle East. But what is meant by the river of Egypt? We might think that that refers to the Nile since the Nile is the principal river of Egypt. However, the Hebrew word used for Nile is different than the word used here. Here, the word for river is Nahar, while every every other time in the Pentateuch, when the text is obviously referring to the Nile, it's a different word. It's the word Yeor. The river of Egypt, then, referred to here, probably refers to something different than the Nile, or the main body of the Nile. It may refer to a now non-existent branch of the Nile, which actually flowed a little bit further east in Egypt to the city of Pelusium on the border of the Sinai Peninsula. So if you can imagine where Africa meets the Middle East, this branch of the Nile would go right to almost where they split, right before the Sinai Peninsula. So it could be referring to that as the river or the brook of Egypt. Another possibility is that the river of Egypt is the Wadi al-Arish. Now, Wadi, in case you are not familiar with that term, it refers to a ravine or a riverbed that's normally dry but flows with water during an area's rainy season. So it's like a river that's not there all the time. And the Wadi al-Arish would have flowed in the northeast section of the Sinai Peninsula, emptying into the Mediterranean at the modern city of Arish. So if you think about Middle East and Africa again, the Sinai Peninsula, the very northeast section of it, would be the end of the Wadi al-Arish. So how does this compare to Israel's modern borders? It would be slightly beyond the southern border of where Israel is today. That wadi, that that temporary river, would have flown a little bit further from where modern Israel's southern border actually is. Now, Israel never actually fully occupied the territory from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. But listen to this description from 2 Chronicles 9.26. We actually read this recently. Solomon was the ruler of all the kings from the Euphrates River even to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. Actually, this designation of the border or the brook or the river of Egypt to the Euphrates appears a number of times in the Old Testament. Here's another place in Isaiah 27. Context here is the future promise to Israel. Isaiah 27, verses 12 to 15, it says... In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and who are scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So this term is actually going to be very important for the rest of the Old Testament, this description of the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. All right, let's put these observations together and answer some interpretive questions related to the covenant. What was the point of God telling Abram to try to number the stars? He didn't actually mean for Abram to go count them, right? See if you can count them. 
Yeah, Eric. Right. Yeah, even if, even though there are only stars visible to the naked eye, that, the idea is it's uncountable. Abram, you won't be able to count them. God, when he says, see if you can count them, he knows that Abram can't. So he's just saying, that's the number of descendants you're going to have. It's uncountable. Another question. Does Abram sin against God when he asks God for a sign, when he asks God for assurance? Is he expressing doubt in God by doing so? This is a difficult question to answer. You know that in one place, when someone has asked for a sign, he is definitely rebuked. Zacharias in the Gospel of Luke, right? Gabriel says, you're going to have a kid. He says, how will I know this for certain? And then he's rebuked. He says, you'll be mute because you did not believe what I was, going, what I was telling you. So, and also, Jesus, when he was ministering to the people of his day, he rebuked the unbelieving Jews for continually asking him for signs. On the other hand, many people in the Bible, including Abram here, are not rebuked for asking for a sign. In fact, in one place, Isaiah 7, God actually commands a wicked king of Judah, King Ahaz, to ask God for a sign. He says, ask, ask him for a sign, even the, the most... Uh, Outrageous sign, ask God for it. And the guy says, oh no, I won't test the Lord like that. He was feigning piety. Certainly, God is never obligated to give signs or proofs that what he says will come to pass, but he does often grant a request for a sign out of compassion and out of a desire to show himself more glorious. He doesn't need to, but he often does grant that request. I'm reminded of what the writer of Hebrews says about Psalm 110.4. In this psalm, we hear this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, did God need to swear when pronouncing Jesus to be a priest of a different lineage? Couldn't God just declare it? Wouldn't that have been enough? It would have. But as the writer of Hebrews puts it, and this is now Hebrews 6, 17 to 18, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So we see something similar happening, happening for Abram here. It's difficult to say whether he is asking out of doubt or whether he's just making a request but God is being compassionate in responding and in granting Abraham's request, or Abram's request. Now, what is the point of cutting up these animals, separating them, and the torch and oven passing through? What is that all about? Yes, Craig. Right. This is a ceremony that confirms and... uh, shows the ratification of a covenant. Abram was not confused as to what was going on. He was preparing for uh, this treaty ceremony that was customary in his time. Just as we have some of those today, two people might shake hands to indicate their commitment to a promise, 
or the bride and groom, when they get married, they exchange vows and rings in front of witnesses to show their commitment to their marriage, to their covenant. There was a custom at Abram's time also when it came to agreements. The two participants would cut animals apart and walk between them. This was to say something about their agreement. What did it say? It showed their commitment, but let's be more specific. What were you saying by walking through these cut animals? That's exactly right, Rich. You're saying, if I dishonor this agreement, I deserve to be treated like these animals. I deserve to be cut in pieces. If I break the promise, if I break this treaty. So here, in verse 17, we have the God of the universe entering into such a treaty ceremony with Abram. God then, being represented by the oven and the torch, passes through the animals, saying, if I dishonor this agreement, I would deserve to be cut in two. I will take on that burden. What's different in this ceremony as opposed to the normal treaty ceremony custom? Besides the fact that God is involved. That's right. Only God passes through. Or only those things that represent God passes through. Abram does not. What then does this say about the covenant because the ceremony proceeds this way? Yeah, Danielle. Exactly. It's a unilateral covenant. God is taking the entire responsibility for the covenant on himself. He says, Abram, you don't need to do anything. I will do all of it myself. The great promises of God to Abram do not depend at all on Abram's performance. This was a unilateral covenant. This, then, is an example of God's abundant power, because he says, I will take all of this on. You don't need to do anything, but also his great compassion. He says, I'm going to pour out my love to you. I'm going to swear to, by being in this treaty, I'm going to pour out my love to you and be faithful to the promises I've given to you, no matter what you do. But what about circumcision? Wasn't circumcision something that Abraham had to do? That Abram had to do? Wasn't that required? Isn't that his contractual obligation to God? Does Abram really have to do nothing? What about circumcision? Well, let's actually look at that. Because circumcision is going to come in Genesis chapter 17. Turn over there. This is where God inaugurates circumcision for Abram and his descendants. We're going to read part of this chapter, but let me fill in some context again. Between chapters 15 and 17, here's what happens. Abram has been... Abram is in the land of Canaan 10 years, and even after Genesis 15, still has no child. So the aging yet beautiful Sarai suggested that Abram take Hagar as a concubine so that Sarah might have children through Hagar. This was also consistent with customs at the time, though it's not approved by God. And at age 86, Abram took Hagar as his concubine, and Hagar conceived. This resulted in a great amount of tension in Abram's household, especially between Sarai and Hagar, Hagar eventually gives birth to a son that Abram names Ishmael. The name means God will hear. Thirteen years later, at age 99, 
God speaks again to Abram. And that's the beginning of chapter 17. God reiterates his promise to Abram, but he also changes Abram's name. The word Abram, or the name Abram, means exalted father or honored father. But Abraham means what? Father of a multitude, or father of nations. Exalted father to father of a multitude. Why would God change Abram's name like this? Certainly, he, the, the timing of the promise being fulfilled, or at least part of the promise being fulfilled, is drawing near. But this, again, is another sign, right? He says, when, when he asked before, or when Abram expressed that there was no child before, God says, go look at the stars. And here again, God is emphasizing, you're going to have a huge amount of descendants. Look, I'm even changing your name to show you that. This would be another sign that God will keep his promises. You can trust the Lord. Let's pick up what God says to Abraham in verse 9. He changes Abraham's name, and then he says this. Verse 9 of chapter 17. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and it shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house of a servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who was born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, let's pause here for a minute before we read more of the passage. God calls on Abraham to adopt circumcision. But God also identifies the purpose of circumcision. What is the purpose? It is a sign. That's the key word, right? In verse 11, it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. It was to be an encouraging and sobering reminder to Abraham and to all of his descendants God has poured out his unmerited favor on you. And he's always faithful to you. The penalty of neglecting this sign is severe. What is the penalty? You'll be cut off. What does that mean? You'll be killed. We see that term actually appear a lot of times in the Pentateuch. And from the various places it does appear, the context makes it clear it means you will die. You'll be put to death. We might think, as some later Jews did, that circumcision was the prerequisite for Abraham or his descendants to receive God's covenant, or even to be righteous. But how does the chronology of Genesis refute this? Can you say that again, Francisco? Very good, right? We just saw that the whole ceremony ratifying and uh, giving proof to God's covenant with Abraham, it happened before this direction to give circumcision. And when God first called Abraham and pronounced blessings on him in Genesis 11 and 12, that's way before this direction towards circumcision. Abraham receives God's promises without being circumcised. 
in Genesis 15, 6 says, God counted Abraham as righteous for his belief in God. And that too was before circumcision. We'll say more about this a little bit later, but it's important that we observe that now. Let's pick up the text again in verse 15. We'll read down to verse 22. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Abraham. All right, let's observe a few parts of this latter text. God changes Sarai's name just like he changes Abram's name. And her new name is Sarah. The difference between these two names is actually very subtle. And there's some debate about what the difference actually is. Both are apparently variations of the term for princess. The one source I read describes the difference between the two names as going from my princess, Sarai, to princess, or the princess. That is to say, this is not just Abraham's princess, or Terah's princess, but princess of the world. Because God's explanation of her name emphasizes her regal position. What promise is given to Sarah along with her changed name? She'll be the mother of nations, right? Kings of people will come through her. Again, I think that's why we have the princess or princess. That's why we have that regality emphasized. But also specifically, before any of that comes, what is she promised? A son, right? She's promised a son. How did Abraham respond to this promise? This promise to Sarah and Abraham. He, I heard you say, Danny, he laughed. He laughed and he asked himself whether this was really to be. Then Abraham makes a suggestion to God. What is Abraham's suggestion? Right. Now, this, it might not be abundantly clear what he says right away. He says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But he's really asking something by saying that. Because God actually responds, no. <laughs> so what Abraham was really asking is, could he, why can't he be the inheritor of the covenant? I'd like him to be the child of promise. Now, certainly Abraham had reason to love Ishmael as his own son. And he makes this request to God, and God says, no. God dismisses that request, dismisses that suggestion, though he does promise to bless Ishmael and make a great nation of him. Abraham asked that Ishmael might be the heir. God says, no, it will be a different child. In one year, you will have a child through Sarah, and that child's name is to be Isaac. And what does Isaac mean? 
laughter, or he laughs, Yitzhak, he laughs, or laughter. Furthermore, or not furthermore, but to say again, Isaac, not Ishmael, would be the inheritor of God's or of Abraham's covenant with God. Now let's interpret this a little bit more now. We already saw before um, about circumcision. But why does Abram laugh? Why does Abraham laugh? Similar to our earlier question. Is this from trusting joy in God? Or is this from mocking disbelief? Again, this is really hard to answer. Because on the one hand, Abraham is not rebuked for laughing or for saying this, saying what he does in his heart, which you might have expected. Furthermore, Abraham falls on his face as he laughs. And falling on your face is an expression of humble worship. Why would he do this if he did not believe? That would be really hypocritical. Why would God not, not say anything about that? On the other hand, Abraham's thoughts sound very similar to Sarah's in the next chapter. An angel of the Lord visits Abraham and repeats the one-year promise of a child. And then Genesis 18.12 says this. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? That's almost the exact same thing that Abraham said. He says, Should a man of 100 give a child and a woman at almost 90 years have a child? It's almost the same thing. But listen to how the angel of the Lord responds to Sarah in Genesis 8, 13 to 14. Or Genesis 18, 13 to 14. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So was Abraham really believing? Moreover, If Abraham believed God's promise, why does he immediately suggest Ishmael be the heir instead of this promised child? Commentators go in both directions in trying to answer this question. It is a difficult one, but certainly, either way, God is being very compassionate and patient with both Abraham and Sarah. They are going to grow in faith. So even if they disbelieve in the beginning, they will come to believe firmly. Because Hebrew 11.11 says of Sarah, and this would be true of Abraham as well, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. She came to have a firm faith in God's promises, as did Abraham. Another question. What do Genesis 12 15 and 17, we've examined those three passages. What do they show us about the character of God? What's one thing? He's very patient, right? That is love. That is a compassion demonstrated continually to Abraham Abraham and Sarah. God delights to make a unilateral and generous covenant with Abraham. God is happy to bless him and his wife wherever they go, despite their failures, despite their lack of trust, and he is patient with them, and he continues to sanctify them and build their faith in him. It is a patient and compassionate God. What else does it show? What else do these records show us about God's character? 
he is faithful, right? And that's our theme for the quarter. Abraham was 75 when he left Haran, and he was first given the promise of descendants, great number of descendants. But he did not receive the child of promise until 25 years later. God never forgot about Abraham and Sarah, nor did he delight in simply withholding from them what they wanted. He's not cruel like that. God was determined to bring glory to himself by teaching them and all of us that his timing is perfect. God waited until a child was impossible from a human perspective before he showed that nothing is impossible with God. God will remain faithful even if God's being faithful seems impossible. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. God is faithful. And this should encourage us. We too wait on the promises of God, promises of provision, vindication, justice, future glorification. Can we believe in the promises of God so that we can live as exiles and strangers on the earth? So We're getting a number of testimonies in the affirmative as we go through Genesis. Noah says, yes, God is faithful. Believe in his promises. Job says, Yes, God is faithful. Believe. And now Abraham and Sarah also say, yes, believe in God's promises because he is faithful. So are we doing that? Do you believe God to be faithful in your life? Does your lifestyle show it? Or do you believe secretly that some things really are just too difficult for God? That for some reason he's not going to be faithful to you. Or that he wants to be faithful, but he's just not able. He's not well acquainted with your needs enough. He's not loving enough. He's not strong enough. But is anything too difficult for the Lord? One last aspect to talk about in relation to this account are its gospel implications. We mentioned last week that the gospel is evident the gospel of salvation in Christ, is evident in God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that all families of the earth shall be blessed through Abraham. How is that actually talking about the gospel? Yes, that's, um, that's a good point, Francisco, just to repeat what you said. It says that he's going to be father of many nations, not just of one nation. And so um, the, the question we'd ask, does, is he going to physically give birth to many nations, or is there something else? We'll talk about that more in just a second, but there is a physical dimension to all the nations of the earth being blessed. And how does that come about? What? physical descendant would come. Yeah. The Messiah, right. In you all the in your seed and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. It's because Christ is going to come from Abraham. The Messiah will come. The savior of the world. This was always God's plan from eternity past. And though the gospel is veiled in some ways to Abraham and to the believers in the Old Testament, It is progressively revealed 
until it is fully revealed in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, the gospel is fully revealed and taken to all the nations, displayed to all the nations. And in this way, Abraham physically is a blessing to all nations of the earth because the Messiah would come come through him. But there's something else, and I think this is what Francisco was getting at before a little bit. We need to pay attention. There's something else we need to pay attention to in these passages because while it's true that Abraham was a physical forefather of many people on the earth, he is also the father in another sense. In what sense? The father of faith, right? In other words, even if you and I are not physical descendants of Abraham, we become spiritual descendants of Abraham because of this concept of salvation by faith. Why is Abraham the father or considered the father of faith? Because he most evidently believed God and it was accounted to Abraham as righteousness, as we saw in Genesis 15.6. Salvation by faith was very evident in Abraham's own life experiences and he, an ancient patriarch. This is a greater fulfillment of the promise to Abraham regarding his descendants. While Abraham's physical descendants would be so many as to be uncountable, so would his spiritual descendants, those who embrace salvation by faith, just as Abraham did. Because salvation, as you know, or as we've said, has always been by faith. Don't be confused for a moment in thinking that there was a time when salvation was different, was by works or by some other means. Salvation has always been and will be by belief in God's substitutionary provision of Jesus Christ for our sins. This gospel is not fully revealed to Adam, Abel, Noah, Job, or Abraham, but it was revealed in part. They knew that they could not be righteous in their own, in their own accords, of their own accords. They needed God to make them righteous. They didn't know how the specifics of how they didn't know the, the specifics of how God would do that, but they knew that He would so much so that they could look forward to eternal fellowship with God in the city that has foundations. While there were men and women before Abraham who acted by faith in God, it is Abraham that the New Testament writers refer to again and again to show that salvation has always been by faith. See a very good example of this? Let's turn to Romans 4. Romans chapter 4. We'll read two sections of this chapter. You know that the book of Romans is the great explanation of the glory of God displayed in the gospel of salvation. After the writer, in the first few chapters, after Paul shows that there is need for both Jews and Gentiles to receive salvation, all people are under sin, all need salvation, he asserts that salvation is only by faith. Now, which person does Paul go to to demonstrate that this is the way the gospel has always been, that salvation has always been? He goes to Abraham. Look at Romans 4, 1 to 5. Oops, I need to turn there myself. Romans 4, verse 1. What, shall we, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. 
Skip down to verse 9. We'll read verses 9 to 12. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of their father, of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So we see those conclusions that we were just talking about. They're explicitly described by the Spirit of God through Paul. Abraham is the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Let us beware of any way of thinking that begins to put us back into a works, wages mindset. That somehow we have to work enough, suffer enough, wait long enough before we can embrace God's compassionate generosity on our behalf. And this is an important warning for us and for people before salvation and after salvation. We must be aware of this works wages mindset. Before salvation, we need to understand there's no waiting period before you embrace Christ. You don't have to reform before you can believe. The banquet of repentance is always open to the broken and contrite. Now is the day of salvation, according to the scriptures. Do holiness and good works result from faith? Yes. But they always come after, not before. They cannot come before. God has to regenerate. But even after salvation, when you and I sin, we must not put ourselves in spiritual time out, continually berating ourselves, saying we're not worthy to go to God. Or think to ourselves that we need to read the Bible enough, pray enough, witness enough before we can come back into fellowship with God. We have to make up for what we did before we can embrace God's generosity. But this is wrong. This is very wrong. Yes, we will naturally grieve over sin, but such grief should not prevent us, like the prodigal son that Jesus describes in the parable, it should not prevent us from immediately returning to our father's house and enjoying him once again. There's no waiting period. There's no timeout period. God says, come back immediately. Glorify me by enjoying me. As Romans says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. God delights as a loving, compassionate God to readily pour out his blessings on you, his care on you, in spite of your sin. Your occasions to sin are actually just occasions for God to show himself even greater to you. Should this teach us to sin all the time then? No. Romans 6 is clear about that. Actually, when understood rightly, this should teach us to sin less and less. Because we understand what a great God we have. We don't want to deny ourselves the pleasures of being in such a God's presence all the time. He delights in steadfast love, and he proves that to you and me again and again when he deals with our sin. I want to 
And you should want to continually feast at the table of such a God. He's that great. He's so great. He will teach you to deny sin and to prepare yourself to go to his city. God's grace for your sin, when understood correctly, causes you not to sin, not sin more. When we understand God's love like this, God's grace, God's glorious purposes for us, we become like Abraham. We do become his descendant. Not only because we are believers in God's promises, but because we become treasurers of God himself, treasurers of Christ himself, who is the full revelation of God. This is what it means to be a Christian, not to just believe in the promises of God, but to treasure God. That is the main body of what I want to share with you today. Final comments or questions about that? Yeah, Francisco. That's a really good comment. Thanks for sharing that, Francisco. Just repeat what you're saying. The penalty for not honoring the sign, or not, the penalty for disregarding the sign of circumcision and also the covenant of God goes through this ceremony, emphasizing that if that covenant is failed, then the person ought to be cut off, cut apart. We do see that type of thing happening to God himself through God's son, Jesus Christ. He is cut off for us. We're, we, are fail, we fail to be circumcised in heart. He does take on that penalty on himself. And of course, he bears it completely and perfectly. What were you going to say, Bill? That's also true, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Right, yeah. And only God could do both, right? To repeat your comment, Bill. In a sense, God is not cut in pieces because he's, he's God. He's indestructible. He can bear the curse and... Uh, he can bear the eternal wrath of God and finish it because he is God. But we couldn't. We would be cut, we would be cut off and we'd be eternally lost. Only God can pay the, be cut off on our behalf and yet not be cut off. Yes, that is um, something that we also affirm that the land covenant to Abraham also still stands and God is going to give that 
He's going to fulfill that to Israel and the millennial kingdom. Other comments or questions? Yes, Roy. We do see that principle. Thanks for sharing that, Roy. God is a covenant God, and he um, often involved in these covenants is, is blood, is sealing those covenants with blood. I'm reminded of the scripture, specifically when it comes to um, sin and righteousness, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And we see that, that principle throughout the scriptures. Other comments or questions? All right, I've touched on the workbooks and application questions today in my lesson, so I won't be taking extra time to go over those. Next week, we talk more about Abram, Abraham, but in relation to something that happens nearby to him. That is Sodom and Gomorrah. Another example of God's compassion, it's a lot. God's faithfulness and also his justice, his holiness. Let's close by reading our memory verse. Remember, we're focusing on this verse from Acts, Acts 17, 26 to 27 talking about how from Adam and then Noah, all people on the earth are descendant. Let's read this together. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, there is none like you. You're so generous. And we see you being generous to Abraham and to Sarah, but God, we know that you've been so generous to us in our own lives. Not just because we are inheritors of the blessings that you were giving to Abraham, that we become heirs of the righteousness that is by faith. God, in so many different ways, these little graces that you show to us each day and your constant patience with us when it comes to our sin, when it comes to our distrusting you. But God, that is not so that we can continue to distrust you, so we would not learn Rather, God, as your scriptures say, through your kindness, the intention of your kindness is to bring us to repentance, to change our minds, God, change our thinking, so we believe that you're so lovely and we don't want to be away from you. God, keep us with you, keep us in you, cause us to abide in your love, cause us to understand your loveliness so that we do that. Thank you for being cut off on our behalf. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to do that. Lord, we thank you that 
he has paid the full penalty and there remains nothing else that we do not need to fear your judgment anymore. We do not have to make up for our sins. We don't have to work to get back into your favor. It's already there. And Lord, you're so ready to pour your abundant kindness on us. Thank you, Lord God, for being such a God. In Jesus' name, amen.